0: Welcome to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I'm your host, Coach Marty, and each episode, I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore this path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. Today we sit down with Dr. Erica Simon, a licensed clinical psychologist, organizational and leadership consultant, and founder of Series B, a consultancy service that is taking a preventative approach to burnout in the workplace. In this episode, we discover the differences between an individual and systems approach to burnout. We explore why burnout prevention is beneficial to a business's bottom line, and give you four tips on how to avoid burnout, when setting resolutions in the new year, as well as so much more. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with a friend so we can help even more people navigate their way to a better career. That's all for the intro. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Erica Simon. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk to you and learn more about your perspectives on burnout from both the employer and the employee side of things. Uh, But let's just start this off um, by digging into a little bit about your background and how did you come across burnout in your work and start looking into these things?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I I really appreciate what you do uh, with your career therapy approach. So really am excited to be here. And I love talking about burnout, not because I love burnout, but because I think we have such an epidemic of burnout in our modern work culture uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's really interesting. I've always worked around uh, as a psychologist, uh, around stress, anxiety, et cetera. And once I started really understanding burnout and understanding how it can show up for 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 us in our modern work cultures is really fascinating to me because I was working at the National Center for PTSD, uh, the Implementation Science Division, and it's really the systems approach. How do we understand systems that people exist in um, and how uh, how the system influences outcomes? And burnout, we were studying burnout, and I was really quite fascinated about how we don't talk about burnout from a systems perspective. We talk about burnout from an individual perspective. And so that just really intrigued me. And so that kind of got me into this trajectory with my career. And since there is an epic of burnout, I can't even tell you how many of my clients come to me when they're fully burnt out, quit their job suddenly, and now need to somehow recover.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's massive, and I think this ties into a lot of the things we've been discussing on the podcast lately, including um, lifestyle fatigue, depression, anxiety, it kind of all sits in that same milieu in a way, and when you talk about the system's perspective versus the personal perspective, could you break that down a little bit more? Just what's the difference between the two, and how can we contextualize this topic from each angle?
1: Sure. Yeah, this is a really great question. Uh, Systems thinking is something that is very seldom actually factored into really anything. We all live in systems, right? Every single one of us lives in multiple systems, actually, and those systems are embedded in bigger systems. So we have family systems, we have relationship systems, we have, uh, you know, our, our work systems, we have our healthcare systems, we have our, you know, city state country systems and all of those have lots of um, inputs and outputs that are all sort of dependent on each other but what we don't do is talk about the intricacies of those systems and how different relationships within environments really influence each other so people exist in those systems and it's quite fascinating. So the, again, I worked at National Center and the, we did implementation science, but our division was actually called dissemination and training division, because we used to think that when we had these really great, you know, insights about how people work and, and how to get things to be better or to improve or innovate, we thought that if we just tell people, they would implement those things, they did, they would, they would do them, If we gave them proper training, they would do, say, a certain kind of therapy, and the individual, say a patient in a healthcare system, would go, yep, I want that treatment, and then the patient would get better, and the clinician would get them better. And what we find is that just is not the case. So we have to understand that every single one of us are individuals within many, many different systems, and there's constant influencing, uh, you know, in, in... all directions and, you know, very intricately tied together um, for how we're all influencing each other. Even right now, like you and I are influencing each other. The people who are listening to this podcast are a part of the system, right? Your career therapy system, you know, they're influencing whether they listen or not listen, whether they like, or they don't like. Uh, There's all these different ways we influence each other, but we don't actually talk about that.
0: I really appreciate you breaking that down because I do think that that gets to the next piece here, which is, you know, a lot of times when we read about burnout or look at things about burnout, it's very much put on the individual. It says you need to get more sleep, eat better, work out meditate, so on and so forth, and so on and so forth. And then you're like, well, I already work 80 hours a week, how am I supposed to fit all that stuff in, right? And really, it is this back and forth between the worker and the workplace, this, this system relationship between the two that we have to sort of analyze from both sides. And so what's maybe something that when people are reading these things of, oh, I need to improve, I need to do better, a very individualistic viewpoint, what, it, what are some of the key things that it's missing about what's happening in the workplace?
1: There's no time. There's just simply no time when we really think about it. Like you pointed out, which is is 100% spot on. If you're already working 80 hours a week or 70 or 60 or 50, or or quite frankly, if you're working 40 hours a week and you're trying to do what I, I call life admin, we have a lot of life admin. We have to you know, go grocery shopping. We have to pick up the dry cleaning. We need to go take the dog to the dog groomer. There's a lot of life admin stuff. And our lives are so full. We're in this always on mentality. We're always with our phones. We think we have everything is urgent. We always have to respond immediately. We're dealing with an onslaught of emails, text messages. Like you really think about how connected we are and how much extra stuff we have in our modern culture, we don't have time. And so when, you know, in the workplace, when we say, oh, you need to sleep better, and you need to get more exercise, and you need to meditate, what we're doing is we're adding several things on an already full list of things to do. Like we have too much to do already. And then what happens is, is we say, oh, well, here's some more stuff. And then we feel guilty about it. We feel guilty because we are, we feel inadequate or like something's wrong or deficient with us because we can't manage to do these things. So it's really comes down to time.
0: And how do we deal with the guilt? Because I see that a lot, right? Um, when I'm talking to people, it's not just that they're not achieving. It's not just that they're not getting a job, let's say it's that they feel Feel terrible about the process of getting a job, and I think that that has a lot to do with this focus on the individual and the guilt that that stems from that. Um, what are some of the guilt things that you've seen in your research and in your practice, and how do we deal with those feelings of guilt?
1: Guilt is such a funny emotion. So emotions are really interesting, and 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 we are constantly at every moment of every day feeling at least one emotion, if not multiple emotions. And emotions tell us something about what's happening in our environment. So we don't tend to listen to the wisdom of our emotions. Guilt is a really tricky one though, because guilt can be either manufactured or it can be realistic guilt. Their guilt is, the, is a, an emotion that indicates to us when we need to repair something or make amends, we need to fix something. Guilt when it's a realistic response to something, we harm somebody by you know, um betraying you know their confidence or something like that. We should feel guilty about that. That is a good emotion to feel in that moment, and it helps us to know we need to make a repair. The problem in modern work culture and just modern culture in general is we have a whole list of I shoulds. Just thinking, just taking a moment, everybody who's listening, and, and you as well, Martin. We can all sit here and probably identify a whole list of I shoulds that we don't even necessarily consciously think about, but that are so implicit that we're still making decisions based on those I shoulds. So I should bake three dozen cookies for that bake sale. I should, you know, get everything done on my to-do list. You know, I should exercise five times a week. I should like fill in the blank. We have so many I shoulds that are perceived I shoulds, and we don't differentiate them from the true I shoulds. And then what ends up happening is we have this whole slew of things where we have no idea even how to prioritize them. And then it leads to this feeling of immobility. So fight, flight, or freeze is our survival wiring. It's our evolutionary mechanism that has been evolving for millions and millions and millions of years to help us cope with acute dangers, physical dangers in the environment. The thing is, is that that same survival wiring gets activated with our modern stresses. It's literally no different. What's interesting about this is that it can really lead to this immobility, to this freeze response. And then we get stuck in this vicious cycle. We And then that can really lead to the guilt as well. Like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I act? Why am I so stuck? And then you complete the cycle. So these are two I think um really strong um, motivators or um factors when it comes to guilt in our modern in our modern time.
0: How can we sift through our uh perceived versus true shoulds, uh, you know, we have a million thoughts going through our head, we maybe even put them into a to do list, which isn't a nice first step, but then we beat ourselves up over that to do list. So what are some of the ways that we can um, better understand which ones are maybe imaginary and which ones are are actually true?
1: This is such a great question. And it's actually really one of the most foundational pieces that I work with all of my clients on from the very beginning. Because everything is so, we have, we have the scarcity of time, bandwidth, resources. There's a really great book called Scarcity, by the way, about this. Uh, we, we get stuck in tunnel vision uh, is, is what the, the authors talk about. You can't just add more to that plate. We have to sift through and grow space to be able to do the things that are really important and meaningful to us in this life. So part of that can be trying to get a, you know, figure out what we're doing with our career, for example. So one of my favorite books is called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And the way it had been uh, uh, sort of conveyed to me by the person who recommended it to me is it's, it's the Mari, If you've seen the, the magic joy of tidying up or whatever that mm-hmm. book craze mm-hmm. was, everybody was so excited about it. It's basically this for your life we see everything that is asked of us our default is yes and then we decide whether or not to opt out this book flips everything on its end it says we should have our default should be no and we make the decision whether we opt in and as the author talks about it, it's what is going to help us make our highest level of contribution. He talks about it within the context of the workplace. But this is this is wildly, you know, a wildly different than any of us think about anything. We start from the place of we should do it. And then we feel really, really awful when we decide not to do it. If you start off with it's automatically a no. And then what is the criteria that helped me decide if this is something that I want to opt into or I have to opt into? All of a sudden, you're starting to change, you're, you're flipping the script.
0: This reminds me of um, one of the cliche things that always comes up in the workplace, which is that idea of quiet quitting. And it sounds more crazy than it is, but really it's just you know going into work and having better boundaries, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and I think that a lot of, what you're talking about here in regards to essentialism and starting from a place of no is especially difficult for people because they we have this sort of duty in our mind this you know thing that's been trained since you know getting our homework done and having to go above and beyond or get straight A's or whatever the thing might be and also the company's paying us so doing anything less than more than they ask feels really bad. And I think that creates a lot of guilt in people. And I, I often ask um, clients of mine, you know, how, how much less could you do at work and still be okay and not get in trouble? And the answers are pretty wild. It's like, oh, I could probably do like 60% of what I'm doing and why that's important to maybe even ask yourself, even if you don't make any changes. um, But it's important to ask yourself because a lot of times people get very resentful that, other people aren't doing as much as them but they refuse to do any less and this weird thing starts to happen where other people get promoted who quote unquote don't do as much as me and builds this resentment throughout a full career and and i'm curious when when you break this all down and you start looking at it from these different perspectives um how do we actually bring a start with no perspective into the workplace because that might scare a lot of people. It might even scare employers to hear that we're encouraging people to to do that. What would you say um, is maybe a a balanced or healthy way to approach that?
1: I love this question because it really brings in how does all of this play into what matters to employers? we're, We're talking a lot about the individual, but then, okay, there's the system piece as well. And like employers, they need to have a certain kind of work output and there is a bottom line you know some companies have double bottom lines or triple bottom lines but every company has a bottom line so how do we actually make sure that in in design thinking terms that every stakeholder has you know their needs met in this you know, this new kind of system that we're trying to create and i think it's really interesting so one of the things that i love about the book essentialism is that he literally lists out some really excellent ways of learning how to say no, because we don't know how to say no. And his whole point with his book is that when he started to say no to the non-essential things, his work effectiveness and productivity and quality of work increased. That's what he found to be so ironic about the situation. I do a lot of work with people trying to get them to understand that with burnout, it's not a matter of if, but when. And the sooner we can get ahead of burnout, meaning that the, the, if we can even take a preventative approach, which is what I would like to do, this, the, the more we can get ahead of burnout, we actually help ourselves give that highest level of contribution in whatever it is we're doing. I like to think about it this way. We have a finite amount of energy, time, resources, coping, motivation, et cetera. I really like to think about them like containers. Like literally, I call this the coping container. For example, we have our motivation container. We have our time container. The whole thing of we all have the same 24 hours in a day is simply not true because some people have a lot of help, which gives them more hours out of the day. So with this, we have to understand that we can take whatever resources we have and we can just kind of give it like spread them out very thin across a bunch of different things, or we can put our energy and resources into the things that matter the most. So when we're burnt out, we're not giving our best. When we're burnt out, we're not going to have that creative thinking. We're not going to have, and maybe we can keep on trying super hard and we're cranking, cranking, cranking. We're in that stress mode and it's keeping us in the, maybe if I just try harder, but once you get into burnout, you really literally burn out. And it's not just in your mind, it's in your body. So this is one of the most important things to stress, which is you can put all of your effort across a whole bunch of different things and do exceptionally well in none of them, or you can figure out what are the things that actually matter. And then that do need your time, your energy, your attention, that hundred percent or that 80%, and then focus on those and then just see what happens.
0: I like that. And it's I think the the hard part for some people might be that last part that see what happens, right? Because we all want this sense of control, sense of control in our career, in our lives, in our relationships, in our in everything. And so we tend to I think one of the reasons people tend to work themselves into burnout, uh, myself included, is because there's this idea that if I don't do these things, then I'll lose it all. I'll lose everything. And a funny story here uh, I was working with someone who they did that thing. They said, Oh, I could probably work like 60, 80, 60% of what I'm working. Right. And for a month, they just cut back on how much work they were doing. And come a few, you know, a month later, they got a call into their boss's office and they were all scared because they'd been doing quote unquote less work. And they ended up getting a promotion and being told that they're doing a great job. And so, That's what I think is so interesting is that a lot of times the extra work people are doing isn't even noticed by anyone. It's not even really impacting the bottom line. It's just busy work or filling time or looking busy or any of those things. And so when we really break it down, there's probably just a lot of energy being wasted. It's not even like we're taking away from productive work. We're just eliminating that excess. That's not really helping anything anyway. Um, What are, do you have any examples of activities that lead to burnout um, or symptoms of burnout that people could kind of be on the lookout for? Oh, if I'm doing this, or if I'm feeling this, that's maybe some signs that I should be making some changes and, and reassessing my, my work, my approach to work.
1: This is a, this is, a, yeah, such a great practical question. And I think one of the things that I recommend people do is to figure out what is their signal that they're in chronic stress mode. We all have our signals. So when we're in chronic stress mode, we keep on doing more and trying more. And we have this feeling like if I just do more, I'll get ahead of it. So this is one of the earliest signs. And but that's also really kind of hard to notice because we are in this frenetic pace of life that we all sort of feel that we're in. So having a signal that's individual to you, for me, it's when I start skipping more and more songs on Pandora. I love music. Music is life, right? Music just makes everything feel rich and beautiful. I have my own, my hero's journey soundtrack that, you know, when I'm feeling like I need to boost, I listen to that. I have all sorts of music soundtracks. So what's interesting about it is I'll start skipping things so they'll feel kind of whiny. And then I'll start realizing that I've just skipped 20 songs in a row. Pandora, if you're listening to this, I apologize. So, but ultimately that is what my signal is. So my very first signal that I know I need to do something is when I start skipping multiple songs because they seem whiny to me. That is my signal. So what is your signal? What is that initial thing that makes you realize that you're in this super stress kind of pressure cooker mode? And it's individual to each of us.
0: I, I was just contemplating on what you said there. And you know, I think for me, it's when I start um trying to rush through my morning routine. It's it's I want to get to the coffee quicker than normal, or I want to skip over journaling, or I want to you know i'm trying to incorporate more um fitness into my life and it's when you know i go for many days or even weeks without um without wanting to do that those are i think for me really key indicators especially cuz every 2 to 3 months after i finish my burnout <laughs> cycle i come back around to it and go all right let's get these things back on the list and and i think what's so funny about all this stuff is you know burnout sort of begets more burnout that's that's kind of what i see with people they They set a goal that's too ambitious, let's say, Um, I hate to say that things are too ambitious, but they probably are. Uh, And then they don't achieve that goal. They burn out in the process of trying to achieve it. Um, They go through their period of like, you know, vegging out or, you know, whatever you need to do to get back to baseline. And then instead of coming back and setting a more realistic goal, we almost set one that's twice as hard. Uh, And we really push ourselves to to, this time. I'm really going to do it. I'm going to crash diet or I'm going to whatever the thing might be in life. I'm going to work 80, 90 hours instead of the 40 I was doing before. And I see this all the time with clients where. You know, last week they said they were going to apply to five jobs and they didn't do it. And they're like, well, since I didn't apply to five jobs last week, next week, I'm doing 20. And I'm like, whoa, if you couldn't get the five, why do you think you're going to get 20? What has changed? And the answer is nothing. They're actually more tired than they were a week ago. And so how do you break that cycle? So we've identified, um, you know, maybe this is a signal or a trigger um, that burnout's on its way. But once we've maybe gone through that burnout cycle, is it okay to take a break? Um, Is it okay? Like when we do set a goal that's not as ambitious and we feel bad about ourselves, what is maybe some reframing we can do or self-talk that we could bring into this picture? Because I think there's also a bit of comparison that screws with people where they go, well, man, I can't be the person that only applies to two jobs a week. I want to be the person that's like going nuts on the job boards. So how do we deal with those feelings as they come up in, in order to set healthy goals that won't lead to burnout. <laughs> it's a complex question. I know, but let's get into it.
1: I, I, I really hear you on this. And I think it is really important because ultimately I, I say, I put it this way with my clients. I say, you know, a lot of times we try and eat the whole cake in one bite to what we try and do. Mm-hmm. And then that that really is, it's amazing to me how much we do this as humans. And yeah, ambition is great, but ambition has to be tempered with realistic appraisals of what we can do and what we can accomplish. So that's one. The second thing is, is that we are really, really good at when we start seeing a trend, we start getting stuck in this, 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 these negative thought spirals around that thing. And then the more we get stuck in those negative thought spirals, the harder it is to actually get out of them. And the more we get immobilized. And that's the thing. A lot of times we are just stuck in the freeze response in this immobilization. I can't move forward. And then the more we make something too big beyond what we can actually do, it it really is. It becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's super common. And everybody who's listening out there, If you've been in this, and I guarantee we all have, you're not deficient. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not inadequate. This is, again, this is our biological survival wiring that evolved for millions and millions of years being applied to our modern life. And so you're going to get stuck. And so the way to get out of being stuck is to start small. The absolute best thing you can do is just make it completely and totally attainable. The hardest thing to do is start. There's this interesting concept in design thinking, uh, human-centered design uh, came out of Stanford and it's all around innovation. It's this concept of bias towards action. Just start. The longer we don't do something that causes us anxiety or stress, the more our brains are learning that we should avoid them. Again, biological wiring. And it makes sense. If there's a saber tooth tiger in front of us, then we want to avoid it at all possible. We don't want to try and fight it. We want to avoid it. Avoidance is so strong. And if you think about it this way, if anxiety or stress is a car, avoidance is the fuel. And the more we avoid something, it begets avoidance. And it's a learning paradigm, biological learning paradigm. So I highly advise start. There's Atomic Habits is a great book. Um, uh, Tiny Habits is a great book. And it's about how we just need to start showing up, make the, whatever it is you're trying to do so radically attainable that you can't fail. Focus on the first two minutes, only do the first two minutes. James clear of atomic habit says something to the effect of habits aren't made by mastering the habit habits are made by showing up. So show up Only do two minutes. If you're getting stuck with trying to figure out your career, set yourself a timer and for a week, you're only going to do two minutes a day and that's it. And when you're done with those two minutes, you stop because then once you start flexing that showing up and showing up and showing up, then you can expand. If that makes sense.
0: It makes perfect sense. And I appreciate you talking about the when to expand, because that's the next thing that I see um, creating a lot of issues for people, right? They, they say, okay, I'm going to network. And I actually had someone, uh, they were like, I'm getting into networking. I haven't done it in a while. Here's what I'm going to do. I've set up 15 meetings with people, like three every day. And then two months later, they were like, I don't want to talk to anyone ever again. <laughs> They're just so tired, so burnt out. And one of the things I notice is um, when we set a goal, we set a goal thinking, when I get there, I'm going to feel good. And then what ends up happening is it takes a lot of small wins to get to that goal. And by the time you get there, you've changed. So the goal seems small. And you're like, this was the whole goal. This is all I set. So I guess I have to set one even bigger than that. And by the so by the time we ever get to the end of any of our goals, we're unhappy with them because they weren't quote unquote big enough. And we just set something further and further in the future. I see this whenever I'm trying to incorporate more yoga into my mornings where I'll have like a great string of maybe two or three weeks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've done it every day. This is amazing. I feel so good. And then I'm like, I'm feeling so good. Let's add lifting weights to this. Yeah, let's let's go to the let's go downstairs to the gym. Let's let's add a little bit more to this. And then suddenly I do that for one or two days, and the whole thing falls apart, or the whole house of cards comes down, right? And then a month goes by, and I haven't done anything. And I'm like, wait, what happened? I had such a good thing. It's oh, I started adding more to it before I was ready. And uh, to your point of starting really small. I almost want to push people to think even smaller than they're thinking, because uh, even it, especially in my case, I've seen as I'm trying to get back into the groove of, of a habit, like the yoga habit, it's like, I think I'm like, okay, New Year's coming up, we're about to set some resolutions, right? Let's go set some really big ones. And I'm like, every day, 45 minutes of yoga Well, I know I'm not going to maintain that, especially in the short term, because it's so I was like, okay, what do I need to do? I need to think small, think small habits. Right. So I said, okay, just 10 minutes of yoga. If I can just do that, I'll be happy. And then this morning I woke up and I was like, I do not even want to do 10 minutes of yoga. (laughs) I was like, I don't want to do it. And and so that's even my smallest goal. I woke up today and was like, I don't want to do that. Now, I did thankfully get myself to do it. And of course, once you start, you feel a lot better, but I'm like, okay, at least like there's a really small miniature goal that I can go for. And maybe it even needs to be smaller than that in the future to make sure I do it every day. But I do really appreciate you breaking it down and, and giving those book um, recommendations. Cause I think atomic habits, tiny habits, all these things are really good. And it is that showing up piece. And I think one of the things that's so hard for us is that If you think about it, it, like if you apply that to the workplace and you say, all you have to do is show up. Well, I mean, that's scary for the person who's just showing up to work. And that's scary for the company who has employees that are just showing up. Um, But of course, it's, you know, all about phrasing here, right? And so what does just showing up look like in a workplace when you have the work system and the individual system interacting? What does that look like? And what should we what should employers expect of their employees? We interrupt today's episode to let you know about Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show.
1: This is really excellent because it gets the I think the heart of what we're dealing with with this you know burnout that is just rampant everywhere. So the interesting thing you brought up quite quitting. Quiet quitting to me, and I agree with you, in a lot of ways, quiet quitting is show up, do your job. That should not be bad. We should not be penalizing people for showing up and doing their job. I think quiet quitting is also a form of disengagement, which is a type, which is indicative of burnout, right? For some people, they really are just completely disengaged. They are showing up. Um, there's this concept called butt in the seat phenomenon, which is I'm showing my worth by how many hours I'm sitting in my chair in front of my computer this has to change. And it has to change for all of us from an individual perspective, from a systems perspective. We're actually causing people to be less effective in the work that they do by having this lens through which we see productivity. We also have this idea that, and it's so deeply programmed in us that the sum total of our work is what we produce. You even think about like the weekend warrior We are always thinking about how we can produce things, what we can produce in our personal life and our work life. We have to change that because ultimately, as far as the employers are concerned, and this is what the research really shows, the research shows that when we work our employees this way, we're not getting the best out of them. They might be sitting there and working, but what's probably happening is they're focusing on the non-essential, non-important things. How many of us have been in that place where all we can do is really focus on all the annoying little things that really actually have no significant impact, like you were saying? The stuff that actually has nothing to do with our productivity or our work output, but we start paying attention to those things. All of a sudden, we really decide we want to have that clean inbox. Is a clean inbox really beneficial to either the workplace or to the individual? It's really not. Um, you do not want to see my inboxes, they're kind <laughs> of purchase. but ultimately we have to make peace with that. So showing up for work means that we show up, we show up with earnestness to do the best job that we can with what is actually our jobs. That is what showing up is showing up is this way where we're showing up. It's not just our physical body that's showing up. We're actually showing up in our minds and our emotions and our our sort of our whole being, instead of carving part of ourselves away. We show up, we wanna do the best work we can, and then at the end of a good day's work, we put away our to-do list and we say, tomorrow is another day for the rest of my tasks and I will, I'll go at it again. We have to be willing to do this. And if we don't have this disciplined pursuit of rest and play and really separating work and, and, and our home life, when everything drizzles in we get two things happen one we don't actually get the benefit of being off and two that impacts how well we can show up the next day at work so we're really you know just kind of destroying everything kind of in this sort of subtle way for employers research shows we can only focus a certain number of hours per day we really can and the some of the greatest minds of our time When we actually study how they worked and what they did for having the innovations like Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein, for example, they gave themselves ample time to not be thinking about anything. So we have to actually do this. And the trick that I like to uh, kind of use, if we don't have the ability to recognize and just honor the fact that rest and play is a human basic need that we are all we we all have the right to have. If we can't just take that as a basic human right to rest and play and not just be, you know, a producer of of output, we'll flip that. Because this is the thing. When we don't take time to rest and play, we're actually not giving ourselves access to a certain kind of productivity. So, we have something called the default mode network and it's this collection of brain structures that only gets activated when we stop doing top-down thinking. Now, this can lead to ruminating on things that are stressful and things like that. So there's there's some aspects of that as well. But this is the birthplace of creativity, of insight, and innovation. How many of us, when we stop thinking about a problem, we get up to go to the bathroom or cook dinner or do something else, we all of a sudden have this stroke of insight. We've all had that. That is the default mode network at play. What happens is, is when we're trying to problem solve or do a task, it's essentially like we're going from point A to point B on the same road. So we're always going to say say the same sites. We're always going to have the same, pretty much same experience uh, from point A to point B, right? The sites are going to be the same. When we stop thinking about it, our brain takes whatever we're trying to think about and it com- binds it with all of our previous experiences, our knowledge, everything that's kind of rattling around in the back of our heads that we're not consciously thinking about, it creatively combines whatever it is we're working on with all of that. It accesses a whole host of, of, of insights that we will never get if we continue to just try to brute force think about that thing. So from an employer standpoint and an individual standpoint, You want to have access to this knowledge base. You want to have access to these insights. Everybody will be better if we give ourselves time to do nothing of
0: importance. Everything you're saying here, I have a million questions to follow up on. Um, When it comes to being there without being there, uh, one of the things that I've heard about recently, and this was something I experienced a little bit in my corporate work in the past, but um, when you're on, now that so many people are working from home and the pandemic has changed- sort of how work looks in a lot of ways um i mean here we are you know doing this from our own spaces right and like uh what i what i keep hearing from people is this um when they're at work they have to have their chat exact uh on and active so there's like a green dot or a red dot or a or a gray dot depending on how active or inactive they are and that creates i think what you were talking about here that sort of being there without being there, um, that showing up but not really being present uh, because you know if you'll get penalized if you step away from your desk or if that if that little button changes or something like that. And I see this almost going, We we hope that companies are starting to understand that by giving people more autonomy, letting them work how they want to work, when they want to work, where they want to work, they actually get better work. But then we see things like the metaverse scanning your desk into a computer so that you have to sit there with a headset on, you know, completely tied in, unable to even like see anything else in your room. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, the dystopian future starts to come at you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's so terrifying because you're like, like, I even know that um, in my coaching work, uh, I'm way better at listening to people, engaging in the conversation and being present in a call if I'm walking around the room pacing. But because yeah. of Zoom, I have to sit here and look a certain way and be framed properly. And I'm like, after the sixth or seventh call, I'm like itching just to move around, right? And that takes away yeah. from your ability to, to do your job well. And and I so I appreciate you kind of talking about that being there without being there. Like being present at your job doesn't mean sitting at your desk. It means having the right energy mentality, you know, set up so that you can do the the best work possible. And then bringing it back to that point you made about play and work and that sort of disciplined pursuit of both. I'm really curious to dig into what kinds of play are best for recharging, best for preventing burnout, because there's definitely certain types of play that exacerbate work, um, burnout. Uh, I could think of the person that comes home and you know, drinks a bottle of wine to cope, right? That might be something that makes tomorrow a little bit harder and then tomorrow a little bit harder. So what are some types of play that you've seen are, are helpful in re-energizing yourself and getting yourself back to a good place?
1: Play is absolutely one of my most favorite topics. And if we could actually change our conversation around play, burnout would be, transform itself. I I truly believe. And my thing is I I talk about a disciplined pursuit of both rest and play. As much as we have a work ethic, we need to have a rest and play ethic. So this is important because play is, I loved when I learned that uh, bear cubs, when they're play fighting and they're rolling around, and if one of them is about to win, they'll kind of pull back so that they can continue to play and I had my brain just oh my gosh when I heard somebody put it this way we're the only animal in the animal kingdom who purposefully basically restricts our sleeping and our play our rest in our play every other animal in the animal kingdom every other one has regular rest sleep and play as just a part of how they show up we're the only animal that that restricts ourselves in these in these ways. And it has a profound influence on how well we can just show up in our in our lives. So um, I think play is really interesting. So play is something that when you do it, you feel a sense of joy. There's something about it where you just you feel this lightness, joy, it feels exhilarating, it it feels recharging. If you do something for play, again, I am highly, just in every single single thing, I can't speak for a second, Um, in every single thing that I do um, in this work, it's don't take my word for it. Try it out. See what happens. So some things that can be really great for play, like I know for me, a five-minute dance party of one in my living room Instantly brings me to a sense of recharge. I can focus, I can concentrate, I feel better, I feel joyful. Um, Doing immersive, fully immersive uh, play where you have to really be in it. If you're in a game, you're playing a a team game or you're doing some sort of like sport where you have to really focus, it's going to help you because you can't be thinking about other things. If you are thinking about other things, you're going to miss the goal or whatever it is. So immersive activities, Um, we all have those things that we do that give us the biggest return on our time and energy investment. What are the things that you do? And we're all individual and unique. This is where you experiment. What is it that I do that afterwards I feel great? I feel recharged. I have that sense of ease. I feel like ready to go again uh, with whatever it is that I'm doing. You all know yourselves. We all know ourselves, but we don't listen to our innate wisdom of what works best for us.
0: That's so key. And I think one of the things that stands out to me as you talk about play, um, especially in this world of hustle culture that still is still is out there. I know there's a lot of, there's finally a pushback against it. Um, But there's this idea, um, especially with social media and all these different things of, every of trying to monetize or profit off of or utilize every single aspect of your life for work and that's actually something that over the years I've been trying to pull apart and not make it so not enmesh the two so much and and I know for me I've uh, a real interest in you know creating art and you know drawing and a lot of different things like that and whenever I sit down to try and do it I always get in my own way because I, somehow try and tie it back to work instead of just allowing it to be its own form of play. And so when I hear what you're saying, it's it's not just figuring out what play recharges you, but actively preventing it from becoming work. And that goes back to what you said at the beginning of starting with no rather than starting with yes. It's like, sure, I guess I could utilize this to improve my personal brand or to improve my online presence or to create a social media thing. But we don't have to turn everything in our lives into a money-making mechanism or a scheme or or brand or or something along those lines. We can just kind of keep it to ourselves. And I think that that, for me, in, in our conversation is something going into the new year, I think I really need to remind myself over and over again of like, don't let this become work. Let it stay play. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. I want to just dig into a couple things as we get to the end of the the conversation here. We are about to go into the new year, or this might come out right after the new year, most likely, Uh, and everyone is in this mode of setting resolutions, so it's a perfect time for this conversation because a lot of times burnout begins, or probably every time, burnout begins with our goals, our goal setting. We do goal setting improperly, and then we burn out. So How might someone approach New Year's resolutions, whether they're career related or personal or play related or whatever? How might we approach our resolutions in a healthy, mindful, balanced, you know, way that will actually work instead of just lead to the February crash? (laughs) What are your thoughts there?
1: Yes, I you know i i love new years as this time you know when we're you know we're about to experience our our solar new year 2023 solar new year and that's kind of shocking that that's where we're at right that's this and it's also a time of new beginnings for you know how we just kind of conceptualize a lot of us have this kind of arbitrary line that we feel like we need to meet some of us really love, though, having that new beginning, that fresh start. I remember when I was in school, uh, just that whole starting off a semester or starting off the school year with the fresh pencils and the new notebook. You know, there's something about that. So number one, if you're a person that loves it, great. If you're a person who doesn't, don't see this arbitrary day as meaning anything whatsoever for what you need to do. You can set your own you, your own timeline for what you want to do. Two, smart goals. I don't know um, if you've heard of smart goals, but it's, uh, you know, they need to be specific. They need to be measurable. They need to be attainable. They need to be realistic and they need to be time bound. I think I'm, yeah, I think that's right. What's interesting about it is that, you know, so it's like, you know, I'm going to exercise in the new year that tells us nothing. How do I know if I got that or I didn't meet that? So we need to have it. It's like, I'm going to exercise and starting small is really important. Two, have it be an intention that you're setting more than a goal that you're setting. So there's something very different than having something be a destination versus the journey that you're on. When we see New Year's resolutions as setting out an intention for how we want to show up across the year, if we kind of get knocked off uh, off a little bit, all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, my intention is to do this and so I can get back on, um, on my path. When we feel like our goal is that we have to exercise three times a week for 45 minutes, and we we don't do that for a couple of weeks, it's as if we've destroyed everything. The goal needs to be the intention that we're setting up. And then what are those, those very real things that we will see if we are basically living in line with that intention? So, And then it's practice. New Year's resolutions are all about practice. It's about saying, okay, This is the thing that I want to do by, and I like to do New Year's resolutions where I'm really thinking about the end of the year. By the end of 2023, what will I be doing differently? Not what will I be doing differently starting at January 1st of 2023? See, there's a huge difference there. Because if I'm saying I'm going to do this thing January 1st, and that's going to be the thing I do, there are about 10 bazillion ways that I can fail with that. Instead, what do I want to look? What do I want it to look like when it's December 31st of 2023? What will that look like if I attain my goal? And then what you're doing is you're just continuing to show up for yourself and show up for yourself the very best you can. And part of that is self compassion. It's saying we all fail, we all make mistakes, we all stumble, we're all just fumbling forward in this life that we're living, doing our very best to be human and we're all perfectly imperfect. so how do i offer myself kindness, compassion and gentleness when maybe i've, you know, kind of fall off the horse for a little bit on my goal? and then with that self-compassion i do it again. i just get back on. the most compassionate people towards themselves are the people who also hold themselves the most accountable and meet their goals the best. so you cannot forget this piece. so I
0: don't know. (laughs) No, I love it. It's 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 pushing us away from the punitive uh, motivations and towards more um, intrinsic motivations. And I think that that's really important to think about, especially when it comes to perfection, because we see that in the job search everywhere. People wanting to make the perfect resume, make the perfect cover letter, do perfect in interviews. And perfection is actually not ideal. It, It makes you look like a robot. The company wants to know that you're a real person who's going to show up and and do, you know, when you have a foible, you're going to be able to handle it and you're going to be accepting of other people's issues. And, you know, in a workplace, we, everyone's, everyone's messy and we have to be able to deal with that stuff. And so I really appreciate you breaking that down and looking at what the end of the year is going to look like rather than hyper-focusing so much on tomorrow, because like you said, you know, without that, long-term view, we're not going to be able to set small goals, right? We're going to set the big goal and then burn out rather than work our way up to it. And, and I like that reframing of a resolution is something that you work towards throughout the year. Eventually you'll get to the resolution, which makes sense because it's a resolution, right? <laughs> but, uh, yes. but yeah, we have to work our way to the resolution of the year. Uh, and so, um, you know, if, if, if it is a tiny goal of just getting in front of, you know, the getting yourself into the gym or getting yourself to the computer to job search or whatever the thing might be um, setting those little goals along the way. I really appreciate that. And so one last thing, as we, um, as we wrap things up here, what are some ways that people can start listening to themselves better? You said we know ourselves, but we don't always listen to ourselves. What, what maybe gets in the way and what can we do to, be more present with ourselves as we move towards these many different things that we want in our lives and our careers?
1: Sure. Yeah. This is, this is the kind of question that gets to these nuances of our humanness that I love. So we have this internal wisdom that we have intuition, but what we tend to do is we discount our intuition and we listen to fear. And sometimes fear is, right, like fear from a survival mechanism, you know, perspective makes perfect sense. There are certain things, fear does have adaptive benefit, but it gets applied to so many things. We're so fearful of the unknown. We're so fearful of uncertainty and ambiguity. We are so fearful of making mistakes or being a failure. One of my favorite stories is the the woman who founded Spanx. Growing up at the dinner table every night, her dad would ask her, how did you fail today? And I think she had a brother too, not sure how many siblings, but that's what they would ask, the, the dad would ask the kids, how did you fail today? And it's so normalized, this idea that we fail all the time. We make mistakes all the time. And so if we can really help ourselves get out of that space of that being this problem, you know, all of a sudden we can kind of crack open how we actually show up for ourselves how have you failed today what mistakes have you fa- ha- have you have you done
0: no that's a perfect answer there because i think that that really at the end of the day it's um where we burn out the most i think is when it comes to that setting a goal not achieving it feeling like a failure leading to guilt then beating ourselves up setting another goal out of a place of frustration And continuing that cycle over and over and over again until we completely burn out and maybe even quit our job or, or blow things up in our lives. And so really helping us get back to that place where we're listening to ourselves. We're setting realistic, small goals. We're looking at it from a long-term view rather than these short-term bursts and taking us a minute to just say, you know, we're all just figuring it out you know um and i think that that compassion is going to be so big as we all head into the new year and take a look at maybe the resolutions we already sent set because we're we're moving a couple weeks in already here and saying did Mm -hmm. i even set good resolutions maybe i need to adjust those and being allowed to adjust those things as we go i think is really key uh when it comes to your work and how people might be able to follow along Erica where can people find what you're working on and uh, see what you're up to
1: well my current uh my current uh, direction that I'm taking is how to really, Take a preventative approach to burnout in the workplace. That that really is coming from a healthcare background um, and believing strongly in preventative care. My goal is to really change the conversations we're having around what our identities are, how we show up, what's good for us. You know where burnout comes from. So I am currently. Uh, my website is seriesb.co. Seriesbe, <laughs> and it's this whole idea of how do we just take this preventative approach to burnout in the workplace how do we instead of waiting until the house is built and it's a complete disaster if you build a house and the infrastructure isn't 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 good you can come in with interior design and redesign you know kind of put you know put some nice curtains on it but the infrastructure infrastructure will still be failing if you have to completely renovate or sometimes we just have to demolish and rebuild so, what my goal is with Series B is to how do we actually address these problems in the first place? How do we see help employers see that everything is better for their bottom line if they can't quite see the individual, you know, how important it is to just, you know, honor our humanity? At least let's see what we're doing when it comes, you know, from both directions, the individual way- place and from the systems place, the workplace. So you can uh, go to my website and check it out. Um, And um, I'm also on LinkedIn.
0: Wonderful. And we have all of that in the description here. So check it out. Go follow what Erica's up to. See all the great resources that she has to share. And Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a wonderful conversation. And I hope everyone, as we head into this new year, is going to take your thoughts and your insights and apply them to the many goals that they're hoping to achieve.
1: Awesome. Well, this has been such a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for having me and and, uh, yeah, I'm happy almost 2023.
0: (laughs) Happy new year. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like, and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.